You are listening to the Time Traveler's Almanac, a podcast from the History Department at Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Hello and welcome to our show. My name is Natalia da Silva Perez. And my name is Isabella Restrepo. Today we are joined by a very special guest, Professor Paul Van Terlaar, Head of the History Department at the Erasmus University School of History, Culture and Communication. Paul, welcome to our show. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm glad that you invited me for talking about a project which I'm very passionate about. I want to start off by congratulating you on this project. Your book, The Real Rotterdammer Comes From Outside in English, or in Dutch, The Echte Rotterdammer Komt Van Bouten, which you co-wrote with Peter Houten. What was your inspiration behind this book? The thing is, I'm working on migration history, on urban history, quite some time, because I think that urban history is in fact also migration history. And Peter is working on migration integration, in particular the contemporary periods. And he's specialized in writing about integration policies from an international background. So I met him a couple of years ago for the first time and we sat together and I said, okay, the things we are witnessing now in Rotterdam is super diversity. And they look at the city and they say, well, actually this is quite different from what happened in the past. And then we became interested in looking for similarities and, and comparisons uh, between the, the past and the present and of course the future. We started with an English publication, but this research needs a more general audience because in the past I was museum director, so I was interested in how do you use your academic research reaching out to, to the general audiences. So I'm always in favor of presenting your research to much wider audiences. So I said, let's turn our research, historical research, policy research, and let's bring them all together, all this academic research in a general book. That's why we wrote it in, in Dutch for a general audience. And then the fact is, of course, what is your central idea? They say, okay, first of all, Rotterdam has a convincing narrative on its ports, because this is actually which we can celebrate, we still are the biggest port in Europe. We have the, a huge port area, so that means there's something we can be proud of. Then we have the very convincing narrative on, you know, we embraced modernism. City was bombed by the Germans, but it, this gave us also the opportunity to build most modern city of the Netherlands. And this is something which, you know, we, we try to market every time. But one thing is fundamentally lagging in this story. What about the migration narrative? Where is it? The idea behind the book is that when Rotterdam started to become a transit port in the end of the 19th century, we had a very convincing narrative on migration because the migrants, they built Rotterdam, they built the port, and their grandchildren put all the energy, all their efforts into creating this modern world port. But then in the 1970s, there's a kind of disruption. Rotterdam is slowing down, its economy is slowing down. It's not ready to enter the post-industrial stage. So that means that the, when it's the first oil crisis, the second oil crisis, there's an economic depression. 
At the same time, the great number of migrants who arrived in the, since the 1960s, 70s, they became unemployed. Rotterdam is in distress because of the crisis in the 1970s, 1980s. So from that time onwards, you see that, that the migration narrative doesn't fit in an overall new narrative. People become dissatisfied and uncertain about the futures. And then there are new people arriving into the city, unemployed, having a different social, ethnic, religious background. So they clash. And the interesting thing is that because of the port and because of the modern city, Rotterdam has a very top-down way of looking at how to solve you know, societal problems like a trial of error. So they thought integration problems can be run by a kind of Excel sheet exercises to increase or decrease the problems of integration. So Rotterdam became, since the 1970s, a huge laboratory of integration policies. And now the fact is that because of these, you know, the distress, 1970s, 1980s, the new political climate since 2000s, in which integration policies is more focused on pushing a very cultural agenda, which of course has to do with the fact that people started becoming afraid of people entering your city. There's a kind of distrust in society. So then you see that the politicians are struggling with the fact, okay, how are we going to deal with the migration? And the harder they try, the less successful they are. Because of the fact there's so much diversity in Rotterdam, how are you going to, you know, start an integration policy, looking at the cultural frame, when there are so many different people? It's not just differences in religion, but even within groups there are big differences. For instance, not every pole coming to Rotterdam works in the harbour or works in the, in the greenhouses. We say to the alderman, this book is your new guide for, you can use this book as an example to say that migration is part of our overall identity, whether you like it or not. And it means that societies which are developing, there will always be periods in which there are conflicts between newcomers and people who once were a migrant, but now consider themselves as being belonging to, you could say, a nuclear, the nucleus of the city. And this is something which happened in the past. So these long-term perspectives help you to understand what are the similarities, but also what are the differences. And if you understand that, now we can start a discourse, okay, what are the real issues which we can handle and which are the things we should better leave it because they're part of a natural assimilation process. That's why we call it the cultural morphing of Rotterdam. So what I say every time, in particular when there is a room full of you know, polit politicians or policymakers, I say, look, if you have a, a bucket of water in one hand and you have the sponge in the other hand, what do you do? You put the sponge into the bucket of water, you take it out and you, know, you start wringing it, make sure that all the un 
necessary water gets back in it. But there will always remain little bits of pieces, particles within the sponge. That's what an urban society is. It's a sponge. There are all these cultural residues, which in the end, even the early residues of the first contact in the water, some parts are still there. So it's all about the mobility. And mobility is something which is particularly inherent in port cities. So if you understand the, the history of Portuguese, you understand the history of migration, the cities are built on layers of migration. And why did we use the title, the real Rotterdam is from outside, you know? If you look at this in the Netherlands, you know, before Christ, swampy area, who could live here? People who were, came here, they had, they had to, to struggle to fight against the tides and the high water, I like to make a parallel with Carlo Levi. Carlo Levi wrote his magnificent novel during the fascist regime in Italy. And then he said, Cristo si è fermata Eboli. So Christ stopped at Eboli. So you can say this swampy area, even Christ would not be able to come to these swampy areas. So when the population started to increase and then needed to build dikes, inner dikes, outer dikes, so the Counts of Hollands, they asked all people, laborers from outside, please come here. So the first people who built the dam in the river Rotte, like they did in Amsterdam, that's why they call them dam cities, they came from elsewhere. So the first Rotterdamers were migrants. And why is this book relevant? Almost everybody in this city has a migration background, and they realize that don't address people as migrants. And then you could say, I'm not going to address you as a migrant. I'm going to address you. What are your responsibilities in order to show that you can be a valid member of this society? Which kind of activities we as a city government can develop in order to help you? And I think this is relevant. So I said to the Alderman, integration and migration should not be a separate silo of policy, not vertical, horizontal. So I have to make a new matrix, a policy matrix, which actually focuses on, okay, what do people need? And there's one very general idea in society, and that is that what do parents want? Parents always want a very simple thing, that their children develop in the best way they are able to offer them as parents. And this is universal. So what is needed for that? Work, schooling, housing. It's in fact, it's very simple. In fact, how are we going to implement it? That's another issue. What's happening in Rotterdam will be an example for what's going to happen in the rest of the Netherlands. So people always focus on Amsterdam. Don't do that. Because Amsterdam is a, a paradise for tourists. Authenticity is lacking there. Rotterdam is an authentic city. That's why Rotterdam is much more interesting than Amsterdam. So if you want to look how the future of the Netherlands will develop with all its complexities, the decisions which will take place in this area will have a large impact what's going to happen on the rest of the, of the Netherlands. And this is why actually we use this book as a kind of mirror, but not, you know, because we have the final answers. No. Actually, we made it because we are now waiting for the new generation, the new the Rotterdamers with a migration background. They should develop the next steps because, you know, look at me, I'm an old white man. So I have no future in this discourse any further. So that's why I stop here now with this book.
I'm not going to, to write another book on migration because I think now we've done our work. It's now the politicians and the new generations to take the next step. And I think this is going on now already. You just explained some of the interesting origins of the city of Rotterdam and how these migration origins kind of kept the migration narrative following a proud and positive perspective. However, you seem to also mention that from the post-war period and in the 1970s, everything seemed to change. What challenges and movements affected the narrative of migration in the city so much? Well, there are two things which are, I think, irrelevant. First of all, in the 1970s, people started to look back at the post-war period. So people became actually fed up a little bit with all this modernism, the port of Rotterdam. And this is a great story you believe in. But then there is a moment you lose your job. You know, is this economic success or not? What about the housing conditions? Because of the fact there was so much money invested in the port, there was not enough to invest in neighborhoods. So you had the very modernist city, but when you look around, there were all these 19th century areas. They were built from the 1850s, 60s, 70s, etc. So these houses were cheap houses and with housing conditions which really needed to be demolished, refurbished, whatever. But there was no money to spend on. So the people who lived in these neighborhoods, they became totally dissatisfied. And those Rotterdamers who could afford, actually, they left the city. So they moved to the suburbs. So these suburbs actually adopted most of these Rotterdamers. But what happened with these neighborhoods? Newcomers came into this neighborhood. So what you see there are the consequences of a selective migration process. People leaving the cities, people entering the city. And because of the fact that the first migrants came to Rotterdam, mostly were men, and was supposed that they would leave and their contract was finished. And then, because of the Poles and the Romanians, a lot of them became unemployed. But they did not return to their home country, because the economic situation in their home countries was even worse than in the Netherlands. We had this safety net. So if you became unemployed, you were all kinds of provisions in order to, to help you. And then they said, well, okay, if you remain here, you stay here, it's unhuman to say to your families, yeah, you're not allowed to reunite with your husband. So that's why these family migrated into these neighborhoods. So these old neighborhoods, you know, actually became the new reservoirs of migration, kind of totally an imbalance. People feel lost. And this is something which was, I believe, neglected too long. So you can say that it was partly the mistakes of the government. They were too late, starting with integration policies, because you have to realize once migrants come to your country, most of them will remain. But they didn't want integration policies because they said once you start with integration policies, people will stay. And that means that you need every time you need new migrants in order to do the jobs which the Dutch were not willing to do. And this is a process which keeps on going in the Netherlands. I think this is a major problem because actually what it generates is that employers are not willing to invest in added value in order to increase the labor productivity. Actually, they can afford not to do it because there's so much cheap labor. And as long as you have opportunities for cheap labor, you keep on asking every time for new cheap migrant labor. 
So that means that these problems will continue and will never end. And this is what I see as a historian. We never, never learn from the mistakes in history. And this is what you see nowadays in the discussion on the asylum seekers. But the major problem is probably related to the fact that we are dependent on cheap labor. And this is something which is almost universal in historical development. And then the big issue is then, what is a Rotterdammer? And then they say to me, well, Rotterdammer, I say, name me one period in Rotterdam's history in which you can call when there was a real Rotterdammer. The 1950s, the disruption of the Second World War, the 1920s, 1930s, internationalization, international migration. And then they, of course, they become angry because they said, actually what they mean, period, before the guest workers. So the cultural morphing of the 1970s actually created all light of being not very comfortable with our migration past. So actually we have this kind of disruption. 9-11 is a very important episode because until 2001, there's a kind of very optimism about multicultural society. But since 2001, they speak about multicultural dramas as if Everything which is multicultural, intercultural is wrong, which is, of course, not, not the case. It doesn't mean that there aren't problems or there aren't frictions, but you should face them with more open minds. There are no easy solutions. So if you understand, you have a different perspective. Because if you realize that there is, are complex problems, then you should be careful. We're not blaming. You know, we're not saying you made that mistake, you made this thing. But you're showing, okay, how did it develop? What are the lessons to be learned? Robert Dyer, he passed away, so he could not see the end products. But he was one of the photographers. Well, started in the 1970s, and he made a beautiful poster, and it says, we are all Rotterdams. And I think this is something which is hopeful at the same time. I was wondering, given that you mentioned this importance of a transnational perspective for the history of Rotterdam as well, and as you know, I'm interested in early modern history, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a taste of the history of Rotterdam before the 20th century. Very nice question about Rotterdam, because although we always focus on the modernity, actually, we were a small town until the 15th century, 16th century. But then Rotterdam started during the second half of the 16th century to develop as an international city, started to develop new harbor areas. Lots of people came here. So the French, the Belgians, the Germans, the Jews, most of them go back to pre-industrial era. They already came to Rotterdam in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. So people from all parts of Europe had this international maritime trading network and they were in Rotterdam. And because of that, because there were so many refugees from France, from, from the UK, so they came to Rotterdam. And all these international communities, very important for developing ideas of the Enlightenment. So you can say that part of the radical Enlightenment at the end of the 17th century was developed here in Rotterdam because of this international community. The migration is not only related to the hard work and labor on the docks, but some of them were part of an international maritime community. 
And there are even people who believe that the international movement of independence of the America was actually formulated in this inner circle of Rotterdam, John Locke, Benjamin Furley, etc., all leading people of the Enlightenment. And it makes sense because trade follows ideas vice versa. So these pre-industrial areas are very important to look at this city from a different lens. That's only one part of the pre-industrial story, of course. The other thing is that because the Dutch became part of global empire, like Portuguese, the Spanish, the French, and English, and during the 15th century, we were leading in our international network. Actually, the predecessor of the East Indian Company was partly based and founded here in Rotterdam by a Belgian refugee, Mr. van der Weken. He was a Catholic, so formally he couldn't have any official functions, but he was loaded with money, so he didn't need an official function. He was just accepted because he was so important for the Dutch commercial community. And this is what I think is interesting when we are discussing Dutch traditions on tolerance. Particularly in Amsterdam, they actually took over this narrative, eh? tolerance Dutch. But what does tolerance mean in a Dutch context? Well, tolerance, if you really deconstruct it to the essence of it, is very pragmatic. Tolerance means as long as we can do business, I'm not going to discuss what you believe, what you think, Keep it to your own. And this is typical Dutch, but we market it as a kind of ideals of Dutch tolerance, which I believe it's nonsense. People f- start forgetting about these international communities, which were already there from the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century, which makes sense because we are a maritime country. So although Rotterdam could all say, no, slavery, this is something of, you know, Binnenberg, Amsterdam, we were not part of it. That's not true. We were already from the 16th century embedded in an international. Otherwise, this city could not have been such an important second city during the 17th century without these international trade connections. It doesn't mean that you say people did not see of enslaved people in the city as much, but we were financially and commercially connected international network. So if you look more at how region developed, and then what we did in the 19th century, we draw a map and now, oh, that's the border. So that means you're Dutch, or across the border you're Belgian, or you're, you're German. You could say that Rotterdam in the 17th century, 18th century, and the same coast, almost all town in Holland, were more international than the city of the 19th century. Paul, thank you so much for your lesson in the history of Rotterdam. It was such a pleasure to hear you talking about migration in the city. Thank you so much for being in our podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure for giving me such a platform to show my passion about this city. So thank you for having me on your show. This podcast is produced at the History Department at the Erasmus University School of History, Culture and Communication. The production team is Natalia da Silva Perez, Peter van den Hede, and Isabella Restrepo Vargas. Financial support comes from the Erasmus University Lustrum 110 Project Group. This podcast is released under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, Creative Commons license. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.